The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from the stories in this week's edition. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and on the menu this week, Hong Kong's controversial post boxes, ridiculous business names, and the link between birth order and intelligence. But first, reinventing the company was our cover line this week. Uber is usurping cabbies, Airbnb is uprooting accommodation businesses, and hardware manufacturers are struggling under the shadow of cloud computing. Disruptors are reinventing industries all over the world. What is less obvious, as our cover story explored, is that they are reinventing what it is to be a company. To many managers, corporate life continues to involve dealing with largely anonymous owners, most of them represented by fund managers who buy and sell shares listed on a stock exchange. In insurgent companies, by contrast, the coupling between ownership and responsibility is tight. Part of the appeal is a growing dissatisfaction with the traditional public company. The rise of big financial institutions that hold about 70% of the value of America's stock markets has further weakened the link between the people who nominally own companies and the companies themselves. People are far more interested in a new breed of startups. In the same cities where Ford, Kraft and Heinz built empires a century ago, thousands of young people are creating new firms in temporary office spaces, fueled by coffee and dreams. Their companies are pioneering a new organisational form. And these modern ventures lap up the technology at hand. They can incorporate online for a few hundred dollars, raise money from crowdsourcing sites such as Kickstarter, hire programmers from Upwork, rent computer processing power from Amazon, find manufacturers on Alibaba, arrange payment systems at Square and immediately set about conquering the world. So, as corporations begin to redefine themselves from within, we turn to redefinition of the external kind in Hong Kong. The target? Post boxes. As an article in our China section described, they may be coming under nationalist pressure from the mainland. Hong Kong is littered with reminders of its imperial past. Prisons, schools and parks bear the names of British monarchs. Almost all of the British colonial governors are remembered in street names. But such historical mementos are now coming under fire. In September, Chen Zue, a former Chinese official who heads a think tank in Hong Kong, criticised the island's failure to decolonize and the refusal of people to accept the territory's relationship with the mainland. Not content with just vocalising discontent, the government is now turning to the colonial past embodied in the humble postbox. A start was made on correcting this after the handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997. Red postboxes, as they are coloured in Britain, were mostly repainted green. Which, of course, is kind of strange when you consider that the official colour of China is itself red and not green. But nevertheless, this apparently wasn't enough. In October, the postal authorities said the use of royal symbols was inappropriate and confusing and announced plans to cover them up. Conservationists are dismayed. One of them, Sin Wei Man, accused officials of trying to whitewash colonial history and likened the proposed covering of the insignia to killing the souls of the boxes. Not whitewashing, but greenwashing, apparently. It seems that this is certainly something to write home about. Now, over in Romania, writing does a lot more than just spread the word. 
as an article in our Europe section this week explains. The makers of the Romanian edition of the board game Monopoly may want to consider altering the get-out-of-jail-free card to one reading, wrote a book in jail. A change in the law in 2013 allows convicts to claim 30 days off their sentences for every work they publish while in prison. It is a system as corrupt as they are. And the literature is piling up. No one knows how many people have taken advantage of the system. One recent report put the figure at 73, with some prisoners producing up to five books in only a few months. Sooner or later, they could struggle to find original names for all these books, and good names are getting increasingly harder to come by. According to our Schumpeter columnist, writing in our business section this week, he explained why businesses are finding it more difficult to give name to their brands. The West is creating startups at an unprecedented rate. Emerging world companies are going global. Established companies are merging to form mind-boggling combinations. The soon-to-be AB InBev SAB Miller Beermoth is rooted in five separate companies. Anheuser-Busch, Interbrew, Ambev, South African Breweries and Miller Brewing. It's almost a six-pack, but making a good first impression is worth the fuss. Great names, such as Google, can provide the ultimate bonus of turning into a verb. Dismal ones, like Monday, briefly the name of a consultancy, can cast a pall. Others go to great lengths to appear familiar. Orange was probably the last company to get away with calling itself after a fruit, there are now so many financial services companies giving themselves pally names, Wonga and Quick Quid, that you long for the good old days when banks called themselves after their founders, Lloyds, or even adopted bland initials, HSBC. A name only gets you so far. Great companies can survive boring names, but even the best names cannot save dismal companies. Like Kodak, which was a name invented in the 1800s by George Eastman. Emerging markets like company names swing in and out of fashion, too. As our Buttonwood column shows, they aren't as trendy and investment-worthy as they used to be. In the first decade of the 21st century, they were all the rage again, and the term brick for Brazil, Russia, India and China was coined. When the economies of the rich world swooned in 2008, emerging markets seemed to be the best hope for the future. But the past few years have seen their popularity wane once more. The change in mood is understandable. The IMF has forecast that 2015 will be the fifth successive year in which economic growth in emerging markets has slowed. Two of the BRICS, Brazil and Russia, are in recession. And that pessimism has extended to China. Many are uncertain whether the Chinese authorities can engineer a soft landing for their economy as it slows from the furious growth previous decades. What's worse is a vicious circle of poor governance and poor living standards could be developing in the BRICS. Sluggish growth will encourage governments to intervene more in the economy, imposing higher taxes or price controls. Governments may also deflect criticism by blaming foreign speculators or companies for their problems. So it's just another brick in the wall. Moving on now, our science section highlights a study from a team of German scientists who set out to find out if firstborns do indeed reign supreme, or if, like me, secondborns are smarter than their siblings. In 1874, Francis Galton, a British polymath, analysed a sample of English scientists 
and found the vast majority to be firstborn sons. He speculated that firstborns were on the whole brainier because their parents gave them more attention. Half a century later, Alfred Adler, an Austrian psychologist, made a similar argument relating to personality. Firstborn children, he thought, were more conscientious, while the later-born were more extrovert and emotionally stable. The German researchers found that Adler was wrong, but Galton may have been onto something. Birth order, they found, had no effect on personality. Firstborns were no more nor less likely than their younger sibs to be conscientious, extrovert or neurotic. But it did affect intelligence. In a family with two children, the first child was more intelligent than the second 60% of the time, rather than the 50% that would be expected by chance. Hmm, I don't believe that at all. I'm the second born, and I can attest that my sister is at least twice as smart as I am. Finally, our obituary section this week bids adieu to Chef Paul Prudhomme, a Louisiana legend. If you wanted the very image of a chef, you couldn't do better than Paul Prudhomme. An enormous girth crammed into chef's overalls of gleaming white, a white snap-brim cap and a beaming smile, especially when stirring a bowl of thickly unctuous ham-flavoured red beans and rice or pouring over the creamy smothering sauce. Ooh, yes, for a crawfish étouffée. Ooh, yes. And he had some quirky pearls of wisdom, too. His TV spots ended with the words, that's good cooking, good eating, good loving. And he poured all that loving right back into his food. His kitchens were hot as hell, filled with smoke from the blackening in scalding skillets. And amid it all, the vast white form of Chef Paul would squeeze from station to station, sniffing here and tasting there and singing Cajun songs. For Chef Prudhomme, bliss was an uneaten bowl of jambalaya, ready to be served. For he couldn't be happier. Giving people great food, watching their eyes open in disbelief with that first bite, and hearing them say to their neighbour, try this, it's fantastic. And that's what they say about tasting menu. Try this, it's fantastic. And I'm Ken Kukier, and that was our tasting menu. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.